Chapter 18 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Repeal of the Taxes on Education. Mr. Gladstone soon came into power again as Chancellor of the Exchequer. This was in 1860, a time indeed of storm and stress for the whole civilized world. Louis Napoleon had completed his campaign in Lombardy, and everyone saw that the Lombardy campaign was only the beginning of new disturbances in Italy. The peace of Villafranca had been patched up by the emperor because he thought he had got all he wanted for his prestige. Italian officers broke their sword blades across the marble tables of cafes in Milan when they heard that Victor Emmanuel and Count Cavour had consented to the terms of peace. England had a new war in China put upon her. From the United States came the first words that told the world of a great civil war about to break out. John Brown had made his momentous raid into Harper's Ferry for the purpose of running off Negro slaves, and he had been tried, convicted, and executed, and his soul, as the popular ballad truly said, was marching on. Abraham Lincoln had been chosen by the National Republican Convention at Chicago as candidate for the presidency of the United States, and we on this side of the Atlantic were beginning to understand what that meant. England was harassed just then by the outbreak of a number of strikes illustrating in action the immemorial conflict between capital and labor. There was something approaching to a panic among the English people with regard to the attitude of Louis Napoleon. We had gone very cordially and cheeringly with him into the Crimean War, but now it suddenly came to the minds of people that we had better make up our minds to prepare for what Mr. Disraeli sarcastically called a midnight foray with our imperial ally. True, said Tennyson in a poem, that we have a faithful ally, but only the devil knows what he means. Let an English statesman look where he would, he saw but storm clouds and portents of alarm. It was at just that moment that Mr. Gladstone, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, seemed to have made up his mind to go in for the broad, bold course of financial reform, of the lightening of taxation as far as possible everywhere, and especially of the diminution or the complete removal of the odious taxes on popular education. One of Mr. Gladstone's first achievements was the establishment of a commercial treaty between England and France, by virtue of which the lighter French wines were to be admitted with a small duty into England for popular consumption, and English manufactured goods were to be admitted into France at a corresponding diminution of impost. The idea of such a commercial treaty belonged in the first instance to Mr. Bright, but was put into shape by Mr. Cobden. Mr. Gladstone gave it his warm and practical support, and Lord Palmerston had no particular objection, did not care very much either way. Mr. Cobden went over to Paris, 
backed up by all the influence Mr. Gladstone could give to him, and entered into negotiations with the Emperor Napoleon III. The Emperor was naturally very willing to be on friendly terms with England, although if it had been necessary for the support of his dynasty to make war against England, he would have done so without scruple. So he readily entered into terms with Mr. Cobden. Cobden had the powerful support of Monsieur Michel Chevalier, a famous political economist of that time, and also of the Emperor's cousin, Prince Napoleon, whom Cobden afterwards described to me as, on the whole, the best-informed man he had ever met. The commercial treaty was passed. We got light clarets to drink instead of fiery ports and ardent sherries, and the French people got all sorts of comfortable garments of English manufacture. Mr. Gladstone was denounced a great deal for the part he had taken in adopting Cobden's policy as to the Treaty of Commerce. He was sometimes talked of in the House of Commons as if he had given the French invading armies a safe landing place on the shores of England. He took all these attacks with a sort of amused good humor. One thing was certain, he always gave back in ridicule a great more than he got in denunciation. The declaimer who had the courage to attack him in Parliament was soon, to use a very colloquial expression, sorry he spoke. That was a splendid session of Parliament for Mr. Gladstone and his policy. He and Bright fought the battle all to themselves. Mr. Cobden was, for the greater part of the time, still in Paris, nor, although a most persuasive and convincing speaker, could he possibly be compared as a parliamentary orator with Mr. Gladstone or Mr. Bright. Disraeli led the opposition, but he neither knew nor cared much about the whole subject, and in any case his position was naturally very trying when he had to reply to Bright and be replied to by Gladstone. It is not pleasant to be set between two such millstones. The grinding process is apt to be severe. Still more important for Mr. Gladstone's career and for the development of education in Great Britain and Ireland was his measure for the abolition of the duty on paper. One has to go back a little in order to explain what this duty on paper really was. The duty on paper has been described as the last remnant of an ancient system of finance which tended to the severe repression of popular journalism. First of all, there was a stamp duty which was imposed with the avowed object of preventing the growth of seditious newspapers, that is to say of newspapers advocating any manner of popular reform. In the early part of the century, the stamp duty amounted to four pence on every single copy of a newspaper issued. Later on, it was reduced, and in 1836, it was brought down to a tax of a penny represented by the red stamp of the government on every copy. Then there was a tax of sixpence on every advertisement in the newspaper. The editor of a great London morning journal has told me that he can well remember the time when a government official came down to the office of the paper somewhere after midnight every day before the paper had gone to press 
insisted on seeing an early copy, and then proceeded to mark with pencil what he considered to be advertisements. Of course, about the regular trading announcements there could be no manner of doubt. When Messrs. Brown proclaimed that they had a lot of new silk dresses from Paris to dispose of, or Messrs. Jones informed the gratified public that they had imported a stock of the finest wines from Bordeaux or Burgundy at the cheapest prices, there could be no sort of a question as to the genuineness of the advertisement. One might say that there ought to be no tax upon advertisements at all, but, admitting the existence of such a tax and the right of Parliament to impose it, there could be no question as to the application in these particular instances. My friend the editor assured me, however, that the government officials were most arbitrary in their definition as to what constituted an advertisement and was therefore liable to the tax. A harmless line appeared in the corner of the paper announcing that Mr. Robinson, M.P., was about to address his constituents in the ensuing week. That is an advertisement, the government official declared. No, it is only a piece of news, the editor pleaded. News me no news, the official replied, and he marked it down for a six-penny tax. The latest of all these imposts was the heavy duty on the paper material itself. This was really an enormous imposition, and let it be clearly understood that the distinct purpose of that and all other imposts was to make it difficult for anybody but a capitalist of great means to produce a newspaper at all. No journal could come into existence until it had satisfied the authorities that it was able to provide the amount of capital necessary to meet all this enormous taxation. As I have said already, the distinct and avowed object of the taxation was to prevent the issue of cheap newspapers. At this time, the first organized movement for the publication of cheap newspapers was beginning to be made in England. The city of Liverpool, the place of Mr. Gladstone's birth, led the effort by starting the first penny daily paper ever published in Great Britain. Lancashire, Mr. Gladstone's county, was then and always since has been in the front of every great movement of social reform. London soon took up the scheme of cheap daily newspapers. The Daily Telegraph and the Morning Star were started as penny daily papers. The Daily Telegraph is at this hour probably the most prosperous and popular daily paper in Great Britain but the effect of the duty on the paper material was still an almost crushing obstruction to cheap journalism. It soon became evident that with this heavy imposition, it was almost impossible that a penny daily paper could pay its way. There had for some time been an important agitation going on for the abolition of all repressive taxation on popular education. Charles Dickens took a leading part in the movement and had even gone so far as to come into conflict with the legal authorities of the country because he persisted in publishing a weekly journal which contained actual news as well as literature. Mr. Gladstone saw that the time had come for giving life and strength to the new ideas. 
he became impressed with the fact that there was no way more efficacious of spreading popular education than by the multiplying of cheap newspapers which brought the daily story of the world home to the huts and the garrets of the poor. Up to that time, it was quite common for a number of persons to club together and subscribe for a daily paper which they read by turns. The usual understanding was that the subscriber who got the paper last should be entitled to keep it in his possession. At that time, as an English writer has observed, it was the creed of many that cheap newspapers meant the establishment of a daily propaganda of socialism, communism, red republicanism, blasphemy, bad spelling, and general immorality. Mr. Gladstone took quite the other view of the question. He had full faith in the intelligence of his countrymen and of the English-speaking peoples in general to keep the cheapest newspaper press within the limits of common sense and decency. He had no faith whatever in the good working of a restrictive money fine to keep down enterprise in the issue of cheap newspapers. The newspaper was, according to his belief, one of the most powerful influences toward the spread of national education, and he soon made up his mind to abolish the last tax which stood in its way. In his financial scheme of 1860, he announced that the government had resolved to abolish the duty on paper. It is hardly necessary to say that such a proposition met with the strongest opposition from both sides of the House. It became a mere question of what we call vested interests. There were many influential manufacturers of paper in the House of Commons, and these all joined in an organized opposition to any scheme which threw open the business of newspaper publishing to free and common competition. Naturally, the well-established and high-priced journals objected to the idea of a penny rag being enabled to compete with a sixpenny daily journal. Therefore, the battle was fiercely fought out in the House of Commons and in the daily press, and Mr. Gladstone became, naturally, the object of much fierce denunciation. According to many of his critics, the result of his policy could only be the overthrow of the altar and the throne, the aristocratic system, and the whole moral creed of the nation. The vested interests in the House of Commons were then, as they are even still, very strong, and one vested interest was generally found ready to stand by another. In the early part of the session, Mr. Gladstone was very unwell, and his financial statement had to be put off for some days. When he did come to make his statement, the force of his marvelous eloquence and reasoning power compelled the House of Commons to pass the provision for the abolition of the paper duty. But at each stage of the measure, the majorities in favor of the abolition fell and fell. The second reading was carried by a majority of 53 the third reading was carried by a majority of only nine. This naturally gave new courage to the House of Lords, and in the hereditary chamber a motion was made and carried by a large majority to reject altogether Mr. Gladstone's bill for the repeal of the duty on paper. 
This action on the part of the House of Lords brought on a constitutional crisis as serious as any that has happened in our time. The House of Lords, it should be understood, has no power to impose taxation on the people of England. But if the House of Lords has no power to initiate taxation on the people, it was fairly and justly contended by Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Bright that neither can the House of Lords have any right to reimpose on the English people any tax which the House of Commons has seen fit to take off. This is indeed the evident common sense of the matter. If the House of Lords could have the constitutional right to reimpose a tax which had been taken off by the representative chamber, that is, the taxing chamber, there could be no reason whatever why the House of Lords should not have the right to initiate taxation of its own free will. Nobody even among the Tory leaders of the House of Lords ventured to contend that the hereditary chamber had any right to initiate taxation, but it was plausibly argued that when a certain scheme of taxation came before the peers, the peers had a perfect right to modify the scheme in any way they thought fit. The question then came down to a very narrow issue. The repeal of the paper duty was put off for one session, but the public out of doors, having full faith in the leadership of Mr. Gladstone, were not much excited by what Mr. Gladstone well called the gigantic innovation on the part of the hereditary chamber. There were meetings held to be sure all over the country, and the action of the House of Lords was strongly and justly denounced. But the general feeling was one of perfect conviction that Mr. Gladstone would put the whole thing right, and therefore there was no popular disturbance whatever. I remember the time well. I was even then in the thick of political life, and I can say with certainty that only the strong faith in Mr. Gladstone's capacity as a leader prevented something not unlike a national convulsion. The Liberals had little faith in Lord Palmerston. Lord Palmerston's sympathies went a good deal with the Tories and against the Radicals. Mr. Gladstone absolutely condemned the conduct of the House of Lords. Lord Palmerston only proposed a series of mild resolutions reaffirming the rights of the House of Commons with regard to national taxation. Then, for the first time, it became clear to all the world that Mr. Gladstone was bidding his final farewell not merely to the Tory party, but to the party of the Whigs, that is to say the lagging and backward section of the Liberals. His final declaration on the subject was yet to come, but it may already be anticipated by some consideration of the conditions under which the House of Lords was still stimulated into setting up its will against that of the House of Commons. I have said that the majorities in favor of Mr. Gladstone's measure dwindled at each stage, and at last came down to a poor superiority of nine. The fact is that at that time the House of Commons was only constitutionally and technically representative of the majority of the people. The franchise was so high and so limited that it excluded the whole mass of the working classes. 
there was not at that time a single man in the House of Commons who represented or was entitled to speak for the laboring population of the three kingdoms. The great reform bill introduced by Lord Grey and Lord John Russell thirty years before, and carried, after a two years' struggle, had admitted what men called the middle classes of England to the right of voting for the election of a member to the House of Commons. But the working classes and the poor had been wholly left out of the measure. It remained for men like Lord John Russell and Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Bright to initiate later on the movement which admitted the working man and the poor to a share in the representation of the country. Therefore, the House of Commons to which Mr. Gladstone submitted his scheme for the abolition of the duty on paper took but a languid interest in the matter when the instantaneous spell of his eloquence was over. Most of the members, or nearly all of them, could very well afford to pay sixpence for their daily paper, and they were not responsible for their votes to any of the class who most especially wanted cheap newspapers. The peers, therefore, naturally took courage. They felt little doubt that the majority of the House of Commons would be rather obliged to them than otherwise for the course they had taken in resisting Mr. Gladstone's reform. But the country kept quiet, as I have said, because it had full faith in Mr. Gladstone's determination and because it was quite certain that the peers would not resist him for very long. As a matter of fact, Mr. Gladstone's scheme was passed into law in the very next session. The peers did not attempt any further resistance. If anything could have proved more clearly than another, the utter worthlessness of the existence of the House of Lords, it would have been proved by its action with regard to the paper duties. For the House of Lords said in one session that to make paper cheap would be to flood the country with abominable newspapers, spreading everywhere the doctrines of anarchy and profligacy, and in the very next session it said, in effect, Well, if Mr. Gladstone and the House of Commons want this iniquitous measure, of course they must have it. If they really want to ruin the country, we must only let them ruin the country and make no further work about it. A story went out at the time, that Lord Palmerston sent up a message to the House of Lords to give them advice as to their conduct with regard to the repeal of the duties on paper. I do not venture to vouch for the truth of the story, but if it was not true, I think at least it ought to have been true. Lord Palmerston, it was said, sent up a message to the House of Lords to say that the rejection of Mr. Gladstone's scheme was a very good joke for once, but they really must not try it another time. The peers would seem to have acted promptly on this suggestion. They did not try the joke another time. The duty on paper was repealed, and the three kingdoms got their cheap newspapers in abundance. It is almost needless to say that not one of the penny papers that started into existence all over this country advocated any doctrine of anarchy or profligacy or disorder. Better conducted papers do not exist in any country in the world than the cheap journals which Mr. Gladstone, by his policy, helped into existence. With one single exception, 
there are only penny and half-penny daily papers in Great Britain and Ireland now. There is not one of these cheap papers that is not far superior in its array of news and in the style of its writing to any of those high-priced journals existing thirty years ago because of the legislation which Mr. Gladstone abolished. No other man could have done the work so well as he did. Cobden could not have done it. Bright could not have accomplished it. For neither of these men was in office, and neither had the command of the House of Commons, which was possessed by Mr. Gladstone. Likewise, it has to be said that neither of them could have had the same influence over Lord Palmerston, which Mr. Gladstone was enabled to exert. Palmerston did not really care three straws about the repeal of the taxes upon education, or indeed about any other popular reform. But then his heart was not set so much the other way as to induce him to enter into a struggle for power with Mr. Gladstone. Palmerston knew perfectly well that Gladstone was the coming man, and that if he were to set himself in opposition to Mr. Gladstone, or make any serious attempt at restraint of Mr. Gladstone, the national will of the country would put the younger man in the more commanding place. There is a story of a philosopher who said of himself that he would just as soon be dead as alive. Being asked why then he did not kill himself, he made the very reasonable and consistent answer that he would just as soon be alive as dead. Lord Palmerston's views as to popular reform were of much the same nature. He would just as soon have no popular reform as any, but if pressed upon the subject, he soon found out that he would just as soon have any popular reform as none whatever. Such a man had no chance against the ever-growing energy and earnestness of Mr. Gladstone. His very style of speaking in the House, easy and colloquial, humorous, full of shrewd hits and occasionally enlivened by a somewhat cheap cynicism, was in curious contrast with the impassioned and majestic flow of Mr. Gladstone's convinced and convicting eloquence. The two men never really came into antagonism at all, but they represented two distinct influences, and had Lord Palmerston been a younger man, it is quite likely that the influences might have come into collision at one time or another. Lord Palmerston's chief interest was in foreign affairs, and there, curiously enough, his policy was rather revolutionary in its tendency. Mr. Gladstone was almost always in sympathy with every foreign cause that represented freedom and advancement, but his dearest interests were with the happiness and with the improvement of the people of his own two islands. So far as home affairs were concerned, Lord Palmerston's great idea was to put off any sort of trouble, to let things slide, to keep away as long as possible any effort at reforming things which perhaps, after all, could do just as well without reform, and generally speaking, not to make any bother. Mr. Gladstone's whole soul was with political and social reform. He saw with the eye of genius and of philanthropy that these countries were oppressed by what must be called class legislation, 
and his whole soul was aflame to give help to those who could not help themselves. Lord Palmerston, though he lived to a good old age, did not live long enough to come to any serious extent in the way of Mr. Gladstone's progress. Indeed, about the time of Gladstone's scheme for the abolition of the paper duties, it became a common saying among the followers of Mr. Cobden and Mr. Bright that radicals must wait quietly until Palmerston's disappearance, and that then Gladstone would come to the front and would do the work which the country wanted. Up to this time, Mr. Gladstone had not spoken out distinctly on the great question of the parliamentary franchise, but people already saw that that would be his next work of reform, and that he was destined to be the leader of the people in England. From the days when Macaulay had described him as the hope of the stern and unbending Tories, what a distance he had already traversed. He was now the great hope of the radical advocates of reform and progress. Cobden and Bright now began to call him the leader of the English democracy. In his early college days, Mr. Gladstone developed a strong passion for writing. I do not know whether he ever cared to ride to hounds or not, but he certainly loved riding for its own sake, quite apart from the fascination of hunting, and he became a rider of marvelous skill and courage. Often have I seen him, in my younger days, galloping over the fields around Chester, close to the Welsh frontier, within which stands Howden Castle. The famous American horse tamer, Rary, when he was in England, spoke of Mr. Gladstone as one of the finest and boldest riders he had ever seen, and Rary was a man who on such subjects quite knew what he was talking about. Years after, when Mr. Gladstone was Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was taking his usual ride in the park, Hyde Park, on a very spirited and even wild young horse. The horse plunged and ran away, got off the ordinary track of riders and came along a spread of turf divided by rails and gateways. The horse made for one of the little gateways of light and slender iron and went straight over it. Mr. Gladstone was apparently quite determined to have the better of that horse. The moment the horse had leaped the gate, the rider turned him round and put him at the gate again. Again he topped it and again his master turned him and made him go at it once more and surmount it yet another time. So it went on, until the horse was fairly but very harmlessly conquered, and the rider was the supreme victor of the day. It is hardly necessary for me to say that this little incident was watched by many curious eyes, and that it found its way into the papers. I happened to be in London at the time, and was deeply interested I saw auguries in it, and I do not think my prophetic inspirations were altogether disappointed by the result. It would take a very reckless horse, or a very reckless political opponent, to get the better of Mr. Gladstone. He has made his party face many a stiff fence since the far-off days of that little event in Hyde Park. End of chapter 18